Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Driven. My name is Rafi Gregorian. In the United States, usually get wrapped around the political issues of immigration, but we rarely talk about the people who are affected or involved. So today we're going to talk about ICE raids. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, frequently conducts operations known as raids to arrest undocumented immigrants. These actions unsurprisingly cause ripple effects through communities impacting everybody. So today, we're going to talk to Fred Diego Oliva, who was the CTO and co-founder of an organization called Streetwide. Hey, Fred, it's so good to see you. I was wondering if, for the record, you could do us a favor of introducing yourself and to Streetwide. Yeah, of course. My name is Fred Diego Leva. And so at this time, it's early 2016. And uh, some human rights organizers and attorneys, mostly in Northern California, have been thinking about how they're anticipating an increase in ICE rates. So some of them had been learning a lot from a model in New York called CopWatch. And they figured that'd be an excellent thing to apply in the context of ICE rates. We started to house a couple of tech efforts we were leading. At the time, the big project under that umbrella was Rapid Response. And Rapid Response was a tool that originally started out with the name MikraWatch, but we toned it down just a bit for a broader audience. Product at its core was a SMS-based tool for communities to set up community self-defense efforts in response to an increase in ICE rates. So for those of you that may not know, a lot of ICE rates take place in the middle of the night or very, very early in the morning. ICE undertakes these raids with very predatory practices. So they'll wait outside of a family's house and arrest the parent when they're taking their kids to school or someone's out taking off on the way to work. And one of the biggest motivating factors here for us, for everyone in the space, was that these ICE detentions are really inhumane. The Supreme Court specifically stated that immigration detention takes away all that makes life worth living. Takes away all that makes life worth living. That's a gut punch of a phrase. Right. It's a pretty stern situation. It's kind of a serious matter. And there's a lot of literature about the unnecessary nature of these detentions. So the idea is how do you help a community made up of undocumented immigrants and their allies, in all likelihood attorneys and organizers, how do you help them set up a system that is assisted by technology so that they can respond as quickly as possible when someone is undergoing an ice raid? So an immigration attorney who happens to be undocumented himself out of Northern California had the idea to apply CopWatch in that context. And he asked my co-founder and partner, Alicia, to help him think through it. And then they, they're like, oh, cool, Fred builds apps. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> at the time, I was working on backend systems at BuzzFeed. But I'm like, yeah, sure, let's dive in. And the idea was originally to help them find a set of tools that they could use to carry out this program. But as things turned out, there wasn't really anything on the market that was a really good fit for this use case. So we ended up building a system from scratch, mostly gluing together Tulio APIs. Who are the users? Who's the audience for this set of tools? There's three main users. So there's on the back end, like the back office side of things are the organizers and attorneys and the operators. Those are the folks that are taking calls. And for the rest of the community at large, be they the undocumented folks or the allies, for them, the interface is just a phone number. You see something and you call in and report it. Someone in the back logs it and then they can send out a text message, which was really the bread and butter of it send out a text message to folks who have registered and been trained as legal observers. So that very, very simple mechanism and dynamic turned out to be a very powerful thing. And they kind of took off like wildfire, especially after Trump came into office. Can you walk me through the life cycle of how this all works? Like trace for me what happens from the raid to when Streetwide kicks in. What's the waterfall of events? 
The way rapid response was operationalized in the field, this is an organization hears about it. They set up an instance. They're ready to go. They have a Twilio account, a Heroku account. The software is deployed. The first thing they do is they have a training and they bring together folks from the community and all likelihood allies and not necessarily undocumented people. Everyone can participate and they train them in the process of legal observation, how to watch an ICE raid or any other interaction with law enforcement responsibly, legally, and how to document all of the pertinent facts. You set up your rep response instance, you run a couple of trainings to get folks accustomed to the model, and you take their phone number, email, and a list of postal codes. You upload an Excel sheet to rapid response, and now you have a list of folks who will respond to incidents within X miles of a given zip code. So now let's say an ice rate is going down. It's 4 a.m., someone is out on the run, and they see an ice van or a van with a lot of guys coming out with bulletproof vests and long arms, and their vests just say police. So they're like, hey, I think that looks like an ice raid. They call the number for their local rapid response network and they say, hey, I'm at the intersection of X and Y Street. I see a van with people with police vests coming out. I think this might be an ice raid. And then the operator logs that into the system. And now you have using the streets, you have a coordinate. And then we do some very simple math to draw a radius. And a text goes out to the volunteers that have registered in that area. Usually people use the areas where they live or where they work or that they are otherwise interested in. And the text goes out to all of these trained legal observers. And they then rush to the site. In some cases, they'll text back saying, I'm on the way. And then when they get there, they'll send a picture. And then the operators can follow up with another round of texts. Ice rate confirmed at X and Y street. We need X, Y, and Z types of observers or this type of support. And in many cases, like you had a pretty significant presence of legal observers. And in more than a handful of cases, ICE has left. So that's generally how it goes down. So you identify, you confirm, and you document. Identify, confirm, document. So how do people end up using it, setting it up? Do they discover these tools because they've heard other people in other communities using them? Is there a master one, like a SaaS model that everyone subscribes to? For sure, for sure. This was kind of an accidental organization. We didn't like go into the world with the explicit goal of setting up an institution around a project. It just kind of turned out that way. What we had originally done was build a quick and dirty prototype. It was like really, really rough. It's just like quick and dirty, like nights and weekends kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And it was it was rough, but the intended use use case was pretty intense situation, so it didn't really matter. But what happened is we roll it out for this one org. The way we set it up is we make a GitHub repo and then make it really easy to deploy to any Heroku account. That way we don't own the data, <laughs> me, Fred. So we set up this organization with it and a neighboring org heard about it because there's some overlap in the communities that are served by different organizations. And they're like, hey, this is awesome where can we get it? So they put us in touch and they asked if they could use it. And we're like, sure. And they asked us how much. That's the first time we ever thought about this actually being a, a viable product. So we gave it to them at what I would consider a token sum. And it kind of took off from there. It was purely word of mouth though. So wait, are you at that point like running a whole bunch of white labeled instances? Is it just you, Fred? Is it Fred running all these different things? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. All of those are really great questions. And they kind of all came to bear really, really quickly. It was just me writing code. Only until recently did we bring on an, another engineer. But everything else that goes around a project like this in terms of support and distribution, it went through myself and Alicia, the other co-founder, and also through a small group of core users. Uh, for example, the folks that were there first, they played a very big role in like product development. 
I would say that we did very little in terms of really deep product development. We mostly listened to those core users, the originators of the idea, if you will. And in terms of support, my original imagined outcome was that I would simply open source the repo and then folks would just be able to use it, right? Like click deploy to Heroku and you're good to go. However, as it turns out, we're working with folks who are working with really vulnerable communities. So uh, technical support was definitely something we really, really want to provide, mostly in terms of data integrity and then also data security and also just best practices. How do you make sure that you're sharing passwords correctly? It got really granular, but with everything that goes beyond just the deploys, we had to show folks how to use 1Password, or at that time, we were really big fans of Keybase to share secrets. That years of events and the need, the very obvious high technical need, and the advent of the Trump administration is what motivated us to pursue this as a full-time project as opposed to a nights and weekends. It became clear very quickly that the need was so great and the stakes were so high and the moment was so much upon us that we needed to dedicate more and more time to it. How did you emotionally make the decision to leave BuzzFeed in order to go work on this full time? What flipped your bit? Yeah, it was difficult to leave because I, I really, really enjoyed my time there. I was working on interesting problems with really, really smart people. I can say that I got the vast majority of my technical chops there. It was awesome. I remember it fondly. It was a combination of things. On the one hand, we had this project that was going, but at the same time, I had kickstarted another small like mapping project with an organization called the Immigrant Defense Project. So I had these two highly technical things that were coming to bear very materially in the real world. And then you have these increasingly dire uh, bodies of news coming from the White House in terms of policy and like really dark projections. You know, a lot of folks at that time were caught in what many would describe accurately as a sense of despair, uh, a feeling of helpless, like, what do we do? But for me, the path forward was very, very clear. People need this. People are kind of demanding it. And this requires a lot of thought and attention. And, and here's the key part, people were offering to pay for it. I actually, again, my original plan was to take just a couple of months and like polish everything and push it out. All of these other circumstances motivated me to just quit BuzzFeed and, and work on this full time. Okay, double click on that a bit for me. What you did is so admirable. You basically rose to a calling. But some people listening must be thinking about their financial positions, whether this is the right time. When I joined the DNC, I definitely ran the numbers to ask myself, could I make this work? Or others may be asking themselves questions around how this impacts their resumes, their LinkedIn's, or whatever they need to continue to progress in their technical career. How would you talk to someone else in the exact same situation? That's kind of a tricky question to answer because at that time, you know, I was 24. I was very young. I'd been working a tech job, so I had a little bit of money in the bank and I didn't have any external responsibilities, no children or even pets. For me, jumping into a position with a potential economic downside was fine. I knew that maybe in six months I would have returned to the industry. So I, I kind of went in accepting that risk, but also I had been consuming a steady stream of startup podcasts and all of these startup newsletters. So the founder story was very strong. It was very present in the back of my mind constantly. Obviously, it's a bit of survivor bias, but you see all these stories of getting to ramen profitability and so on and so forth. So I saw a path to that. One, I could tolerate the risk. And two, it wasn't as open a question around the potential for some revenue. So I figured we could probably make that happen. Finally, my co-founder, Alicia, had a very good sense around the possibility for philanthropic funding, which I had no idea about, but it, there was some promise there. But even if that hadn't been the case, I think I would have still done it, mostly because the calling was so 
loud and clear to me. And just that alone with, with the tolerance for risk was enough for me to jump ship and go ahead and join the good fight. At a time where so many folks were wondering what they could do, it was very clear to me what I could do. So it would have been, I would have felt terrible if I hadn't done it. I don't know, Fred. When I first met you, I was so enamored by what you decided to do. I remember watching on the news, seeing all these lawyers here to rush to airports to help people. And then I see you, a technologist, an engineer who also rose to the calling to help out. It was so inspiring. Did you always think you would do something in the social sector and non-commercial space? Or was this more of a, this literally fell in my lap moment? Somewhere in between, up until DACA came out, I wasn't documented my whole life. As a result, I found myself being organized by people. So like student movement type things, the dreamer stuff that happened in the 2000s. I was an active participant to a degree there. So there was always a question of technology, right? Some could say that the dreamer movement kind of emerged as like a digitally native thing. Like websites and Facebook campaigns were always there. So that's an undercurrent there for sure. But I never thought about making a product until the summer of 2015, where I participated in a Blue Ridge Labs fellowship out of 150 Court. That's the first time I was exposed to the concept of a product. And then it really clicked for me, borrowing from some of the stuff I had seen in the field as a youth who was organized, and then learning about things like user-centered research. Those things married really well in my mind. Those are actually the factors that made it possible for me to conceive of building products for the social sector. During my time there, I was thinking about legal technology because you can imagine legal user flows like pipelines within a decision tree. Like that was like a really easy metaphor to reach for. So I was like, oh, why has no one done this before? I learned really fast. Why? That kind of Cambrian explosion and like the horizon of possibilities that I could imagine is what I would credit for my belief that this could be. Prior to that, I don't think I had ever really thought about building tech for the social space, mostly because I was very new to tech. But it's finding that spark, that spark of the idea that was enough to set you down this path, that beginning of that Cambrian explosion. Yeah, exactly. For me, it was definitely that cycle in product research. It maps really cleanly onto this other concept from like the social sciences called like dialectical education coined by a sociologist and educator, Paulo Freire. He's an educator. He like worked on literacy in Brazil, but he also talked about the underlying dynamics of people rising to reach for liberation in the context of colonization. And that was obviously, you know, as a Mexican person that is undocumented at that time, a very impactful reading. But then when I learned about product design and product research, I'm like, oh, this maps on one-to-one in a tech context. Very, very useful marriage of ideas. Let's go back a bit. Let's go back to Streetwide for a second. Talk to me about getting product market fit. Like, how did you do it? What was the process of getting feedback from people using it? How did you make sure that your product is getting incrementally better every single day? We were very spoiled as a tech project. So because of the rapid adoption and the quick spread and then the severity of the issue, everyone was just asking for additional features. And just how my exposure to product development cued cause an explosion of imagination, the fact that someone had built a tech tool for this very specific use case for this very specific group of people cued in them also a great deal of imagination. So they were constantly thinking, what if we could do X, Y, or Z? What if we could detect when ICE was near a BART station and text everyone in that area? Some of these things weren't technically feasible, of course. But it's just a simple fact of the, that folks could start to imagine how technology could serve them. Folks were giving us feedback all the time. First of all, it's a very stressful situation to be in. So the operators had a lot of requests like, hey, this form could be better. Can we collect this additional data? 
And secondly, a lot of these organizations that were early adopters, they were funded by philanthropy. So they had a lot of reporting requirements. So they wanted to collect additional data. And in my mind, I'm like, cool, this is a golden opportunity. If you have this widely adopted across the country and you have folks collecting some of the same data points, that might be the only data set real-time feed of ICE raids, which in fact, at that time it was. The feedback was constant, both from the operator side of the organizations, but also from the community. The community was asking other questions. They were asking, can we use this for other issues? Like a lot of conversations sprung up around responses to other things like evictions or alternatives to policing was a big one. Can we have a hotline for example, like domestic disturbances so the police doesn't have to get involved. So again, the fact that it was used in such an intense context and folks that were engaged in other similar work really led to an explosion of features, most of which we rejected just outright. We had to actually scope it down dramatically. And in terms of incremental improvement, it's some pretty run-of-the-mill software engineering. We had everyone on continuous delivery. So something would make it into, into main and it would go out to all the instances pretty much immediately. And we had a couple of feature flags here and there. That, that's it. It was really, really scrappy. I like to think that I bringing something from the industry in terms of thinking about data and data pipelines, a centralized anonymized data repository that folks could contribute to and then pull aggregated stats from. And that was all novel. But at the end of the day, it was <laughs> a lot of Python glue holding together pretty singular effort. How much of your role is product and how much of your role is engineering? I mean, support, DevOps, like how did your time on rapid response break down? <laughs> so definitely all of those and I'm sure those numbers do not add up to 100. They add up to like 225. I would say that most of my time, maybe 30 to 50% was spent engineering. And then the rest was on product and then support. So we codified a lot of things fairly quickly, how to share credentials and stuff like that via email. Just here's my key base link, encrypt it, send me that blob. Congrats. I would say that most of my time was spent in engineering and then a little bit like 15% DevOps and IT support. And then the rest was product. And the product work was really organic. I like to think of myself on this project, not as a product manager, but more as a conduit through which all of the users could be product managers. I just collect, these are all the requests. These are connected to each other. This is how many times I've heard them. Cool, I'm going to wait them thusly. All in my mind, prioritize some features. I would say the split was mostly engineering, a little bit of IT and DevOps, mostly because those are, for the most part, solved problems, thanks to platform as a service. And then I would say the second biggest thing after engineering was product, but a very crunchy, very dialectic form of product. I tried to remove myself a bit from that flow and be a recipient still, as opposed to try to manage. Where does that security paranoia come from? First and foremost, data security is a, a good practice. Uh, security is also kind of runs counter to convenience, right, or ease of use. So we have to find a good balance. And anytime you're doing one of these things, you have to think about what the actual threat model is. And in our case, the threat model wasn't necessarily the government. The government has a Palantir and a Falcon database with nice UI. They can find people. That's not who we're worried about. We were actually worried about the potential for anti-immigrant groups to like catch wind of this and try to either infiltrate or otherwise compromise an organization and its legal observers or the worst case scenario, the documented folks themselves. That's really the concern. Anyone with the anti-immigrant sentiment who might want to intervene with the effort. And it actually has happened a lot. Actually, folks get the numbers and they, well, they rate them and stuff like that. We've written some pretty quick and dirty code to test if a number is VOIP in the hot path of the request so that we can block them on a whim and things of that nature. But yeah, that's the model. The reason for all the security is so that no anti-immigrant group gets a hold of a list of folks who have said they will side with an undocumented person in the case of an illegal raid. That's a very dangerous thing to have out in the wild. How about team building? Like, How did you recruit and bring on that other engineer? A lot of these things just fell in my lap. 
I met an engineer who was it also happened to have been undocumented, who was interested in coding because they wanted to build technology to help immigrant rights. They had a background in field organizing and they did a career switch through a code camp. I asked them for a little bit of help. And then way down the line, like years later, they were in a position where they could help and they joined the team. They're an operator now. They run several instances and they put out features and squash bugs, but it kind of fell in my lap. There are other scenarios, though. For example, some of the more centrally located and well-positioned groups have a lot of engineers in their network. And we've actually received a non-trivial amount of contributions from members of organizations' networks. For example, say you went to a legal observer training and you're an engineer, you're like, hey, if you need help, let me know. We added a field to a Google Sheet for those organizations and we were able to reach out. We actually had a hackathon with one of the groups in Seattle, actually, and they put in a couple of APIs, which was kind of nice for me. That's really how a lot of the team building has been executed thus far. Not super useful as an insight or a pattern. We've been a bit cavalier about it, but mostly because things fall in our laps. Uh, It was a very organic um, development. So, Fred, what's happening next with Streetwide? We started Streetwide because we needed a vehicle to hold the projects, but we really did not know what we were getting into when we ran up against the issue of like needing an organization, <laughs> something we had planned for or to be super candid, really desired. Uh, I have a very hacker mindset, like, cool, build it, deploy it, let it run. If it dies, it dies. In this case, it required a lot more care. We've built it, we've deployed it, we've raised funds for it, we've developed it, and now we're going to open source it. So the engineer I mentioned earlier is working on that right now, finding a couple of candidates for community management that could work with organizations and manage the type of effort and capacity that some of those orgs may want to provide. But it's going to be an open source project. I think that's the best path forward for it. And also, no one's really stepping away from it fully. We're always going to be here to shepherd and steward it because it is a very important project as turns out for the organizations that are still using it. It's actually core infrastructure for a number of orgs now. So even if we wanted to, we couldn't think of conscious walk away. So what we're doing is we're going to open up the project and let it kind of take up a life of its own and just continue to prevent bit rot, maintain, update, patch it. But I think for the vast majority of feature dev, we'll probably just find groups that want a feature and may be able to provide capacity somehow. How am I supposed to read how you're feeling toward this work right now? Like, are you burned out and tired and want to try something new? Are you looking for a different challenge? Like, where is Fred right now? So personally, I never really thought of myself as someone who would work in the social sector, at least not full time for an extended period of time. I find that my skills are best applied when they're relevant, but I don't think I need to stay in one thing for too long. And the way that manifests right now is like, cool, we built, we ran it, we shepherded the project through like a really intense period. And now it's sustainable. It runs itself. So we're going to let it continue existing. But me personally, I'd like to replenish my like technical chops, continue growing on the professional trajectory. I really enjoyed my time at BuzzFeed. I learned a great deal and I like going places where there are interesting challenges and things of that nature, really cool things to build and novel context to be super frank. So I could spend more time working on a project like Streetwide or RepRespond. In all likelihood, I always will. I will always be the contributing code or you know fielding requests or questions. Right now, I think that I need to re-enter the field, learn some new things so that the next time I'm called to action, I have a fresh set of skills that are constantly being replenished. And that's really where I'm at. But all that to say, it is very, very easy to be burned out, especially in immigration. Across the social sector, there are many, many challenges. Immigration happens to be one of the ones where the potential for burnout is particularly high because you're seeing almost all of the folks that end up benefiting from your work are going to be either experiencing one of the worst days of their lives or helping people experiencing one of the worst days of their lives. 
So the immigration space is very, very, very difficult to work in. That's very, very true for lawyers. But if you're a technologist and, and you're going to go into immigration, you should definitely consider that fact. We made tools for folks who were being raided by stormtroopers in the middle of the night. And then we made tools for folks who were in asylum detention in the South. So these are very intense contexts. So it is important also to step back especially as a technologist, where maybe you do something that's useful. And as long as you are a responsible steward and they can continue living and you're not going to leave technical debt somewhere, maybe step back for a bit. Maybe the one piece of advice for people listening is that you can go work on intense things. It might not be the thing you do forever. You can go work, contribute, make a difference for a while. But everyone realizes that you also, every once in a while, have to take a step back and that's okay. I would say it's practically necessary. I don't think that I would, in good conscience, ask anyone, ask someone to do something and without having a an end to the time box. Um, I've actually have brought people on and they contributed pretty intensely for quite some time. I brought a, a buddy from BuzzFeed. He came to help us with product for a follow-up project. He made some incredible contributions. And then he's like, cool, this is really intense. I'm like, it's cool. You already did the thing. You know, no hard feelings. I mean, more, in fact, more than just no hard feelings. It's like, thank you. Like you did the thing. And maybe maybe it's not too radical to think about how a technologist may be really, really helpful in a context as someone who can organize and manage a project and the labor that goes into it. Because honestly, a tech project is a very non-trivial thing, even an open source tech project, especially in a context as intensive as this one. So there are in all likelihood many, many ways to contribute that maybe don't need a permanent full-time commitment. I would invite all of us to explore what that means in our context. Yeah, maybe there are PRs on something that is in use in the field or other needs, but maybe we need to make a GitHub page for those projects or something like that, because that, that would be a good way for someone to wet their toes. I could talk to you forever, Fred, but thank you so much for making the time and thank you for everything you did at Streetwide. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm always happy to chat. Um, yeah. As we're recording this, we're watching a major shakeup in the social media industry. We're watching Elon Musk try to transform Twitter. We're seeing certain users flee to these smaller upstart networks like Mastodon. And in the backdrop, we're seeing Facebook or Meta's fundamental business model be challenged with ever-changing things from Apple or warning shots from regulators. These warning shots are coming because, of course, throughout all this, we're seeing these powerful companies be used to manipulate the outcomes of elections and tamper with our society. Given that, we're going to talk to a friend of mine, Laura Edelson, who is the co-founder of an effort called Cybersecurity for Democracy, where she has been working on exposing online threats to our social fabric and to create recommendations on how to counter them. See you next time. <laughs>